So, guys, hmm. what is uh, your favorite Olympic sport? Because I'm super hyped for the Olympics this year. I know. Mine would have to be either the ice skating or the gymnastics. Ah, well, this is a summer Olympics, so I'm going to go oh, with gymnastics. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, mine's not even in the same like one. I'm fuck the Summer Olympics, <laughs> whatever. Damn, man, really? <laughs> okay, Christian. <laughs> well, Mine's it. My favorite is the luge. Uh, oh, we, yeah, I forgot about because that. Because of two reasons because of the movie Cool Runnings. <laughs> and if you've never seen that movie, shame on you. If I've never, never seen, seen that it. movie, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I can't be friends with you anymore. That's bullshit. We both know it. <laughs> I know where you that's live. It. I, that's it. I quit both shows. Fuck <laughs> this. At least you didn't say Jamaican bobsledding. Huh? <laughs> what? Oh, that is what it is. It's Jamaican bobsledding. Oh, it's the Jamaican bob. See, I've never seen that movie. What yet. the fuck? Nobody. Oh my god. I'm like literally so alone. I'm like, I'm on. Is that where they're in the bathtub? Didn't they all like die? No, they didn't die. I want to say a bobsled team died. No. At the Olympics. No. <laughs> but I, but I forgot my second reason. The second reason I like it is because they're all like hunkered together and like yeah i do like that i just i like the luge yeah it makes me think that they're like baby seals on its belly and it's like (laughs) i was thinking like penguins or or that or that i can't believe that you just like ruined my whole joke for cool runnings like that just fucking is that where they're like in the bathtub yeah okay i've seen that scene that specific scene i've seen it it's my favorite well, I don't know about you guys, but it's very cheerful. What are you about to not make it cheerful for me for no. the Olympics? We're talking. We're, the Olympics no, have made it on this show, so <laughs> so I'm hyped that this year in Tokyo is the first year that skateboarding is going to be part of the Olympics. That's cool. Yeah, they built this massive ass skate park. What? When are they? Are they really like debuting that? In yeah. Tokyo? What? The I don't fuck? know how any of those guys passed a marijuana test. All the cool fucking shit. <laughs> I don't how I any of them passed a a pot test. I have no clue, but mm. here we are. So don't ask questions you don't want to know the answer to. Eric. No, uh, all that. I, I should I know her. that after hosting the show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you should. Welcome to Creeps in the Crypt, guys. Welcome back. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by the lovely Sam and Christian today. Hello. Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's your turn, Christian. A fucking space cadet. <laughs> You're really pretty. I'm still, I'm still thinking of fucking uh, cool runnings right now. So <laughs> she's watching it in her head. I am. <laughs> Before we get any further into this episode, guys, please remember to subscribe to the show, download the episodes, and mm-hmm. if you're on Apple Podcast, right leave us a good review. review. Leave yeah. us a good review. But today, given our talk about the Olympics, we're going to be talking about what, Sam? The 1996 Atlanta. Olympics. And what happened there, Sam? Well, surprisingly, well, not really surprisingly, it was back in the 90s. Um, not a lot of people know that the Olympics were not only in Atlanta in July of 1996, but the Olympics were also bombed at the, at the start, at midway, I think it was. I never even heard of this until, like, you said. The Centennial Park went, bombing? Yeah, never, never. Never? No, never. So, there was this show on Netflix is called Manhunt Deadly Games. They go into detail about what happened and then, then the investigation that went on after. And the five-year 
manhunt that ensued for the man responsible for the Centennial Park bombing. Now, I, like many people I know, watched that series. But, specifically the episode where Richard Jewell held that first press conference and spoke out about the bombing, I had the big, okay, so like, you know, like the, the 90s, like, rom-coms or whatever, they highlight the record scratch, like, and it's like, time stopped. I had that moment in my head. I'm mad that I don't have that sound on my fucking soundboard right now. I know. <laughs> Oh, well, you have it now because I just did it. (laughs) Perfect rendition. Yes, it was great. (laughs) But I was like, holy shit. I was at the Summer Olympics in Atlanta. I was there. Four-year-old Sam was at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And she still has the hoodie to prove it. I still have the sweatshirt to prove it. It's, to this day, the warmest sweatshirt I own. Even after the one, the North Face one you gave me, Christian, this one is warmer than that it's all the death oh my god it's, it's haunted death. you have a haunted sweatshirt <laughs> you do mine's not haunted mine's from north face is that why it's my favorite no yours was just made in a sweatshop yes <laughs> mine might possibly have death involved in ter- misery is at least involved blood sweat in- and tears yes somebody threw themselves into the suicide nets to make <laughs> oh you that god. north face hoodie <laughs> so upon my record scratch moment i texted my mom and my sister and I was like, um, did, did you really take me at four years old t- to a bomb site? And do you want to know what my mother said? Yes. We thought security would be really tight. If that is not the most eh, fuck it mentality of 1990s parenting, I don't know what is. Eh, fuck it. <laughs> and you turned out perfectly fine. <laughs> totally fine. I'm, I'm fine. You don't have two podcasts where you talk about murders and death. <laughs> no. And a, and a whole small business dealing with serial killers. Yes. I, that's, I don't, that's not me. I don't wear my 1996 Atlanta Olympics sweatshirt I mean, how you all do, the time. How you deal with your 90s trauma and how I deal with my <laughs> 90s trauma is completely different. But sort of the same. Is it though? A little bit sometimes. Sometimes we're like. Oh yeah, that's true. I just bring up the horror and horror on your <laughs> podcast and on this one, too. <laughs> I love it. It's fine. In Atlanta, Georgia, on July 27th, 1996, an anonymous call to 911 warned that a bomb is going to explode at Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta during the Olympic Games. The caller says, quote, there is a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. A security guard named Richard found an unattended backpack sitting under a bench and started questioning people around if it was theirs. When no one claimed it, he immediately started to evacuate the area because he thought it could be a bomb and alerted Special Agent Tom Davis, Assistant Supervisor at Centennial Park during the Games. Richard's job responsibilities were to patrol the area around a temporary media tower that was constructed on the grounds. A bomb diagnostic team was dispatched, and one of the men looked inside the bag and saw wires and pipes, but somehow didn't think it might be a bomb. What's crazy is, I remember seeing an interview with Richard Jewell, and he was talking about how, you know, he saw these two guys having drinks under, like, sitting on this park bench where the backpack was left, Mm -hmm. and when he got up, 
he followed him and was like, hey, you guys left your backpack. They're like, well, it's not our backpack. And then he started call- freaking out and calling people over and shit. Right. Security started to move people away from the area. 22 minutes later, at 1.25 a.m., there's a little bit of a dispute, either 1.20 or 1.25 a.m., a backpack with three pipe bombs weighing a total of 40 pounds went off. What's crazy about that is it was timed perfectly because Jack Mack had just finished his set and then the bomb went off. That's crazy. I have photos at the bomb site and of the stage. And we're going to be posting those on our Instagram all week long. You're welcome. Yeah, it exploded during the free concert and it killed two people, 44-year-old Alice Hawthorne of Albany, Georgia, and a Turkish cameraman named Meli. Just Meli. I'm not going I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. I'm sure he appreciates that. <laughs> from beyond the grave. <laughs> Uh, I couldn't even pronounce Arapaho correctly. I'm not oh, you even... just did. <laughs> After you were roasted post-edit. Thanks, Jeff. Um, and it injured over 100 people. Special Agent Davis said, quote, Richard was very concerned about the backpack. I would categorize it more as being very overzealous about the situation more than freaking out about it. We just stated asking all of the people in the general area if the backpack belonged to them. And, of course, no one claimed ownership of it. He also said, quote, I won't ever forget. It was a very loud explosion, and the heat from it was tremendous. It just forced me to the ground, and from that point on, it was just utter chaos. Tom Davis is a real piece of shit for this, (laughs) this comment, because... I watched Richard Jewell, mm-hmm. the movie that Clint Eastwood did. Yeah. Really fucking good. And this poor bastard gets drugged through the fucking oh, dirt. Awful. But the dude saying, like, Tom Davis saying this is just like them trying to close this fucking thing as fast mm-hmm. as possible. Well, um, yeah. I mean, it's the Olympics. That dude's a fucking hero. Absolutely. 100% Richard Jewell's a hero. He should never been. He should have never been on a fucking list. No. He, he saved people that day and got right. shafted. Quite literally. Yeah. Richard's fast thinking was so highly praised that he actually ended up on the Today Show with Katie Couric. He had interviews with CNN and the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Quote, Everyone wants to know who the security guard is, end quote, said Ken Alexander, who was the U.S. attorney in Atlanta in 1996 and also the co-author of The Suspect. July 30th, 1996, Centennial Olympic Park reopens, a.k.a. when my mom and dad decided it would be a grand idea to take a four-year-old and a 14-year-old to a bombsite. I've seen no problems with this. Thanks, Tammy and Dodd. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> there's, there's definitely not any trauma. <laughs> no residual PTSD I mean, or anything. There's no trauma. You wear that hoodie like all the damn time. I literally wear that. It's her podcast hoodie. <laughs> yes. Podcast it's literally my podcast sweatshirt. Well, it's because we also keep our podcast stream like a crib. This is a tundra. It, it, it is the crib. It is a crib. That's the way I like it. I'm literally walking into your house with sweatpants and a sweatshirt half the time in July. (laughs) In the heat of the low country. 
I'm in sweatshirt and sweatpants. They're still in my car, by the way. My sweatpants. Hell yeah. <laughs> I keep them in there. I was waiting for you to like slip those on over top <laughs> and then like break out a burka. <laughs> One day I will. And like like be record like wait till we start recording in like winter time. Sam's gonna be in here like fully clothed. She's gonna be like, Are we doing like the Yeti today? Looking like an Eskimo. Because <laughs> I feel like that we should be recording the Yeti. F- facts. Yeah. Yeah. It is very much facts. Also on July thirtieth. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the same one that interviewed Richard for his heroic actions, pointed their finger at him for the bombing. Kathy Scruggs was the one who broke the story about Richard. She had contacts in the police department and the FBI. Supposedly, Richard's name was given to her from someone in the FBI, even though evidence against him was, at best, weak and circumstantial. They still continued to crucify him in the media. NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw said on air, quote, they probably have enough to arrest him right now, probably enough to prosecute him, but you always want to have enough to convict him as well. There are still holes in this case, end quote. They also said that he planted the bomb so he could discover it and make himself the hero. He couldn't even go grocery shopping without being bullied and beaten, all while agents just watched. Some real scumbag shit. Yeah. But he did end up filing lawsuits against, Mm -hmm. like, everybody. Good, as he should have. Yeah. Do one thing right. Right? You just try to save a bunch of lives, and all of a sudden you're the bad guy. No good deed goes unpunished. That is a very true He lived the epitome of that phrase. On January 16th, 1997, another bomb exploded outside of an abortion clinic in Atlanta and blew a hole into the wall. While police and EMTs were still at the scene, a secondary bomb went off near a dumpster injuring seven people. Just like the bomb that was used at Centennial Park, this one was also a pipe bomb loaded with nails and was meant for authorities. Jesus Christ, he's trying to turn them into damn voodoo dolls. Swiss cheese. <laughs> that, yeah, I, the, the bomb in Centennial Park wasn't meant for like the people. It was meant for the authorities. Yeah, it was. We'll get more into that later. So five days later, still in Atlanta, another pipe bomb went off at the other side lounge, a lesbian nightclub, injuring five people. A second bomb in a backpack was found outside after the first explosion, but it was safely detonated. Investigators linked all three bomb sites, but still had no suspect. On January 29, 1998, another abortion clinic was bombed in Birmingham, Alabama, killing an off-duty officer and wounding a nurse. This was the first deadly bombing of an abortion clinic. A car with a North Carolina license plate was spotted at the scene of the crime and was later found abandoned near the Georgia state line, and it was traced back to a man named Eric Robert Rudolph. A pre-med student named Jermaine Hughes and a lawyer named Jeff Tickle both saw Eric the day of the bombing. The next day, news organizations began receiving anonymous letters crediting the Virginia-based Christian anti-abortion terrorist group Army of God with the bombings. Army of God's one of those groups where several key members mm-hmm. 
are known for like murders, kidnappings, shit like that. Army of God's a really fucked up group. Like they make the Westboro Baptist Church look like Captain Kangaroo. I forgot about them. Yeah. Oh, they're still very active on Facebook. It's my favorite to watch. They were outside of St. James one year. The high school I, here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had to be let out early That's because they were crazy. coming. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, they they um you unlocked a memory I forgot I had. Yeah. I do that from time to time. <laughs> but they Army of God, like I said, way worse than Westboro Baptist Church. They don't just picket funerals and shit. They mm-hmm. straight up like will kidnap, murder, kill, all that good shit. That's crazy. The New York Times reported that the letters warned that, quote, anyone in or around facilities that murder children may become victims of retribution, end quote. The letters also said, quote, death to the new world order, end quote. But by the time the letters began arriving at the media outlets, federal agents were closing in on Eric. Unaware that he had been identified, Eric spent his day renting a movie and grabbing a meal at Burger King before going off the grid. Why fucking pick Burger King? Because <laughs> your... you can have it your way. Oh, good pun. <laughs> Throwing it in there, stealing uh, it zing. from me. Stealing uh, it from me. I, I, I hate you both. <laughs> I had one job on this podcast. Hey, it... I gotta get it every now and then, okay? She's having it her way. <laughs> Flame grilled. Um, <laughs> no, that was the abortion. Was that a ginger joke? No, it wasn't. But if you want to take it that way, go for it. Um, that would be Wendy's. <laughs> so I wonder what it doesn't ever say what he ordered from that Burger King. And I kind of want to fucking know. I, Chicken fries. You may, can we write him? He's still alive. Yeah. What did that would be such a random letter to send him? What so, did you what, order the day that you let off the grid? That we, day at Burger, King. Burger King. Yeah, it's like why are King. you guys so obsessed with the fast food choice? <laughs> because we're trying to figure out I mean, if was, his connection. I guess he was trying to make a speedy getaway, so he did have to have fast food. I guess mm-hmm. he did. When federal and local authorities arrived at Eric's trailer. They found the door swinging open and the lights on. They surmised that he had managed to grab a month's worth of food, raisins, green beans, and trail mix before bolting. His truck was found abandoned in the woods about a week later by two raccoon hunters. Eric was definitely gone, and he remained gone for a very long time. By the time that Eric Rudolph disappeared into the Nanahala National Forest on January 30th, 1998, he knew the woods well. Though he wasn't originally from the North Carolina area, he was from Homestead, Florida, born on September 19th, 1966, to Robert and Patricia Rudolph. They met in Manhattan, and they were followers of Dorothy Day a social activist who ran soup kitchens and led demonstrations against the Vietnam War. The couple had six other children as well. See, this is the problem with big families. One's always a serial killer. One's always a serial killer. And they had already been in, like, protest of the government. Mm -hmm. So I can see how that's ingrained into him at this point. Yeah. Religion was a major part of their lives. 
The Rudolphs lived a pretty typical life until 1981 when Robert died of cancer. After that, Patricia had the responsibility of raising all seven kids on her own, and it tested her faith, which I feel that. Yeah, she ended up, like, blaming God and the government for, like, not helping. Some point to this moment as Eric's extremist beginnings. The family may have blamed the federal government for not giving the green light for an experimental treatment that could have saved his father's life. Eric was 15 when he lost his father and very impressionable. His father's death really took a toll on him. Shortly after the loss of Robert, Patricia packed up and moved her and the kids to onto six acres in Nanahala, North Carolina. The Rudolphs lived off the grid, growing their own food and herbs, raising goats, ducks, and chickens. They built a water system that didn't require electricity. Eric spent a lot of time outside and a lot of time with his neighbor, Thomas Wayne Branham, which is oddly (laughs) my quote-unquote sister, her mom's maiden name. Damn. (laughs) I want to check out and see if if there's any relation there. (laughs) That, like, just clicked in my head. So, Thomas was a man of radical politics who considered himself to be free of the confines of state and local laws. He's a sovereign citizen, dude. He's (laughs) like, it's, it's literally like if Alex Jones took on, like, A protege in the 90s. (laughs) When Eric was 17, the ATF raided Thomas's home and found a submachine gun, a short-barreled shotgun, two M16 conversion kits, four sticks of dynamite, electric blasting cups, and manuals about bombs and other unconventional warfare devices. That just sounds like arts and crafts. And a partridge and a pear tree. What the fuck? I mean, he had the kitchen sink. Full of bullets. Oh, my Lord. I mean, to be fair, this is this is starting to sound a lot like Ruby Ridge 2.0. Like, for the listeners, look up Ruby Ridge. Basically, it's another one of the ATF's m- metric fuck-ups. So, it. think like Waco, Got this it. incident. There's a lot of similarities here. Thomas was outraged and saw the raid as a major invasion of privacy. The Rudolphs were also pissed about it. By this point, Eric had dropped out of high school, and Patricia was homeschooling him. She's quoted as saying, I taught my kids to be creative thinkers, to not accept the status quo, always question. Bomb first, questions later? Apparently so. I mean, you have a radical uh, political mind teaching young children who are impressionable oh you mean like never mind it's not this podcast Uh, what could go wrong what could go wrong a lot of things a lot of things even so later that year at the encouragement of Branham she packed Eric up and moved him and his little brother to Shell City Missouri where Dan Gaiman a leader in the Church of Israel and follower of the anti-Semitic racist and homophobic Christian identity movement maintained a compound. I find it funny that a guy who hates homosexuals has the last name of Gaiman. <laughs> that's, well, that, that's a little sus. That might be um that might be why <laughs> the all the teasing. 
Maybe. You never know. Kids are cruel, man. You're going to tease me. I'm going to show you where I'm really at. Right? They lasted four months before retreating back home to the mountains of North Carolina. It's unclear what Eric learned from the experience, but Patricia described that time by saying, quote, everybody makes mistakes. So that dude is like one of the uh, Don Gaiman is or Dan Gaiman is one of like the proponents of Army of God. So after that, Eric got his GED and attended a few semesters of college at Western Carolina University. When he dropped out of college and joined the Army and served with the 101st Airborne Division. At Fort Campbell, Kentucky, he learned how to handle explosives. But his time in the military was cut short when he was discharged for smoking marijuana. Uh, He couldn't compete in the Olympics? Nope. Nope. He would have been thrown out of there, too. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where it all stemmed from. All he wanted to do was throw a javelin. (laughs) Marathon runner. (laughs) Yeah. He probably wouldn't have been good at running. He's good at hiding. If hiding, <laughs> if hide and seek was uh, an Olympic game, was an Olympic sport, he would have he would have had the gold medal. <laughs> so once again, he headed back to the Nantahala Mountains. He lived alone and supported himself by doing carpentry jobs in the area. He didn't use credit cards or bank accounts because he believed that authorities would track him using his card number. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. Got to stay off the grid, man. Right? The CIA has antenna in my fillings, in my teeth. They're tracking my thoughts. I got to pry my teeth out, man. Oh, God. This sounds like more what a meth head would do than a you know, mass bomber. You have never encountered a crazed anti-government schizophrenic. No. No. No, I haven't. Uh, look up James Bratchard. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. You're, oh, my God. In 1996... Eric toyed with the idea of leaving North Carolina, lamenting the fact that the mountains were becoming too populated. He also believed that the bigwigs in Washington, D.C. were plotting to provoke a national catastrophe and use it as a reason to declare martial law. Eric thought their endgame was to throw all Christians into concentration camps. This is literally just Alex Jones and InfoWars Drudge Report. All, all the fucking hard right sites. <laughs> this is some crazy. Wrapped into one. I bet he is flipping shit in prison. I know. I When I was like reading through all this, I was like, oh my God, he is shitting himself. Yeah, absolutely. With yeah. everything that's like going on right now in the Damn government. It, He's like, there's a goddamn have- FEMA camp in North Carolina. <laughs> Dude, he could sell the shit out of some water filters if he was actually out today. He'd already, he'd have a damn website on par with Alex Jones. <laughs> selling water filters and male vitality pills. Oh, sweet Jesus. So, he left Nanahala and moved to Murphy into a rented trailer. A few months later, the bombing started and Eric Rudolph went into hiding. The FBI scoured the Nanahala National Forest with bloodhounds, electric electronic motion detectors and heat sensing helicopters they set up listing posts with cameras and hired local scouts to tramp through the woods with gridded maps a huge manhunt began to find eric he was placed on the fbi's 10 most wanted list that may with a one million dollar reward 
That's when bounty hunters came crashing into town, determined to make a fortune off finding Eric. From the very beginning, there seemed to have been a rift between the federal authorities and the locals who knew the area well. In 1998, Chris West, who was the assistant police chief of Andrews at the time, told Citizen Times, quote, The FBI is keeping it pretty hush. We could have given them help with the terrain, showed them spots they need to check out, caves, caverns, old mountain homes, but they haven't asked us, end quote. That's, uh, that's some pretty wild shit that, like, the FBI wanted to be, like, the sole yeah. s- source of the capture. But the fact that they looked at these people as, like, just rednecks was, they could they could have caught him. Rednecks know where the shit is. Rednecks is know their land. This is just another example of, like, why police investigations get fucked up because of, like, mm-hmm. interpersonal struggles and shit like that. Like, interdepartment struggles. Yeah. It's probably not a far stretch to assume that many people in town viewed the FBI with a skeptical eye. They were seen as city slickers who swooped into the mountains without any real knowledge of the terrain they were working with. Many people in the community felt the government was just using it as a training exercise more than anything else or thought that maybe the FBI was using it to get more publicity and to get more funding. At the same time, the FBI did not try to hide the fact that they believed that many of the locals sympathized with Eric and may have even been helping him evade capture. Eric's family supported him and believed he was innocent on all charges. They were questioned and placed under under surveillance. On March 7, 1998, Eric's older brother Daniel videotaped himself cutting off his left hand with a radical arm saw in order, according to him, quote, to send a message to the FBI and the media, end quote. The hand was later successfully reattached by surgeons. What the hell? Jesus Christ. So he used a fucking radial saw to cut his goddamn hand off? Yeah. And filmed it? Yeah. I gotta fucking find that video. I know. I was gonna say, can we find that footage? I would love to see it. <laughs> Just blood spattering on his protective goggles yeah he was wearing do you think he was wearing protective goggles probably oh yeah i mean you know i don't know if sawing your hand off is osha safety (laughs) measures they go through that in the manhunt deadly games oh hell yeah yeah it's like a casted series i I need to it's really good it's really good i need to watch that all I, my my research uh, stemmed from watching Richard Jewell. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch that movie and read wa- the book. We can watch it. I want to find the suspect. It was really good. I highly recommend it. Until the day he was captured, the last confirmed sighting of Eric Rudolph was on July 7th, 1998, when he showed up at health food store owner's George Norman's house in Andrews and asked for help. George said that he declined to help but he didn't report the encounter until two days later when Eric stole his truck and 75 pounds of food. Police, Jesus Christ. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of uh, no wonder bars. he had to stole, steal the truck. I know, right? Police recovered George's truck abandoned at a trailhead, but by then, Eric had disappeared into the woods again. The police continued to comb the mountains around Murphy. By 2000, 
the search had scaled back. By the spring of 2002, there were only a dozen agents on the case. Eric Rudolph is just one slippery motherfucker. Yeah. He uh, had to have been having help. Oh, People he... Were, oh, 1,000%. Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember reading an article uh, earlier this week where it was talking about how they were using, like, thermal imaging. And he had a dugout basically dug underneath a big-ass rock. Mm-hmm. And he... Like, any time the uh, helicopters would fly overhead, he would just go hide under this big-ass rock so none of the thermal imaging could, like, find him. That's crazy. So he was like right under their nose, the whole time. Yeah, but he uses, I guess, he uses military training. Yeah, I mean, to, I mean, the guy and, used his knowledge of the area, uh-huh. his military training, and he's got survivalist training from that guy. Yep, Bram. I mean, he's a crazy, he's a he's a fucking crazy extremist. Mm-hmm. And then the people in town were probably leaving food out and shit for him. Mm-hmm. So that's like a big part of Manhunt Deadly Games is like the search for him. It a lot of crazy shit happens. Highly wow. recommend it if you haven't watched it. So a year later, there were only two agents in Asheville coordinating a team of paid scouts. There was speculation that Eric had died somewhere out there in the dense, wet woods. The FBI spent five years and reported $24 million searching for Eric and turned up empty-handed. Until May 31st, 2003, by rookie officer Jeffrey S. Postel of the Murphy Police Department caught Eric while he was rummaging through the trash behind the Save-A-Lot grocery store in the middle of the night. Officer Postel initially mistook Eric's flashlight for a weapon. When he drew his gun, Eric peacefully surrendered. When Officer Postel asked Eric for his name, he said he was Jerry Wilson of Ohio. Confronted back at the station, Eric quickly confessed to his true identity. What's really interesting about that is... And five years is a long time to be running and hiding and living off the land. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it for five days. No. I hate camping. Yeah. And I especially hate camping after this show. Hell no. You couldn't pay me to go out in the fucking woods after doing this show. Yep. Not even a little bit. When he was arrested, Eric was wearing a blue work shirt and pants, running shoes, and a camo jacket. His hair was cropped short, and he had grown a mustache, and his fingernails were clean. He dropped 30 to 40 pounds. The fact that he wasn't a wild-haired, rag-wearing vagrant added to the speculation that he'd had help along the way. A plea deal was brokered in order to avoid the death penalty. Eric had to plead guilty to all three bombings, as well as the 1998 murder of a police officer and was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences on July 18th of 2005. Rudolph's motive for the bombing, according to his April 13, 2005 statement, was political. Quote, In the summer of 1996, the world converged upon Atlanta for the Olympic Games. 
Under the protection and auspices of the regime in Washington, millions of people came to celebrate the ideas of global socialism. Multinational corporations spent billions of dollars and Washington organized an army of security to protect these best of all games. Even though the conception and the purpose of the so-called Olympic movement is to promote the values of global socialism as perfectly expressed in the song Imagine by John Lennon, which was the theme of the 1996 games. Even though the purpose of the Olympics is to promote these ideals, the purpose of the attack on July 27th was to confound, anger, and embarrass the Washington government in the eyes of the world for its abominable sanctioning of abortion on demand. The plan was to force the cancellation of the games, or at least create a state of insecurity in order to empty the streets around the venues and thereby eat into the vast amounts of money that had been invested in them. And, then, quote. and then Sam's parents were like, hey, you know, eh, it'd be real it. fun. Let's go to the place that the bomb just went off. Right. The tickets are cheap. Well, no. See what happened. See what happened was. What happened was. My mom worked for our local chamber of commerce at the time, I think. Mm -hmm. And one of the ladies there ended up she couldn't go. So my mom was like, all right, I'll, t I'll buy your tickets from you. Yeah, I'll fucking go. And brought her four-year-old. I ain't scared of no bombs. Apparently, that is the most, I'm telling us the most 90s, eh, fuck it, parenting I've ever heard of. My mother took me to the Olympic Centennial Park bomb site. Who's, who, other than Tammy, would ever? That's some wild shit. I can't. Whenever she came home today, I was like, what the fuck? I'm scarred. She's like, you're fine. <laughs> That's why I put you in charge of the research on this, because I was like, Sam will do it justice. Yes. I literally rock it. On a weekly basis. So I'm um, I'm assuming that this statement single-handedly cleared Richard uh, Richard Jewell, right? It did. Okay. It did. He was vindicated. He was. It just took him five years of hell. Poor guy. Mm. Eric began writing letters to his mom describing how he managed to survive in the woods for so long. He told stories of raiding dumpsters at McDonald's and grocery stores. Sometimes he'd dig through the dumpster at the movie theater for popcorn. He'd pick food from gardens and pilfer grains from silos, taking it all in the truck he stole from a used car lot. Back at his camp, he would bowl the grains and then pound them into pancakes and fry them. Dude, he was eating pretty good in the neighborhood, man. Right? I mean, yeah, there's there's probably some slimy popcorn in there. Ugh. but And some half-eaten McDonald's. Gross. Stale fries. He told the CEOs that he lived off of nuts, berries, turkey, bear, which I didn't even know you could eat bear. Oh, yeah, you can eat bear meat. And salamanders that he swallowed whole like sushi. You feel a wriggle on the way down. Uh, oh, stop. He's basically a wild man at this point. Ugh. He's like a raccoon. He's just dumpster diving for food <laughs> and then foraging. So in the version that he tells the COs, he paints himself as this survivalist. But from the stories to his mom, it sounds like he spent most of his time lurking in the shadows on the edge of society, living off of the excess of the community. 
Yeah, I'm willing to bet it's a lot more of that than the. Uh, I, yeah, I, I stalked this bear. bear. Yeah, I stalked this bear out in the woods, man. It was crazy. Shot right. that motherfucker with bow and arrow. Right. Like, come on, homie. In one of his letters to his mother, he wrote, quote, Many good people continue to send me money and books. Most of them have, of course, an agenda. Mostly born-again Christians looking to save my soul. I suppose the assumption is made that because I'm in here, I must be a sinner in need of salvation, and they would be glad to sell me a ticket to heaven. I do appreciate their charity, but I could really do without the condescension. They have been so nice. I would hate to break it to them that I really prefer the... Nietzsche? Is that what that is? Yeah. Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche is uh, an author. There's a Z in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's foreign. Got it. That I really prefer Nietzsche to the Bible. Eric remained unrepentant for his actions and in a statement before the court called his acts against abortion providers a, quote, moral duty, end quote, as I go to a prison cell for a lifetime, I know that I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Eric said, quoting scripture. Essays written by Eric that condone violence and militant action have been published on the internet by an army of God anti-abortion activist, while victims maintain that Eric's messages are harassment and could incite violence. I mean, it it's just a army of God, like I said earlier, it's just a hyper-radical mm-hmm. anti-abortion, just a, a bunch of religious zealots, mm-hmm. just full of hate. That's, that's all they do is hate. Oh, yeah. And they call themselves Christians. In February of 2013, with the help of Daniel, his brother, Lulu.com published Eric's book, Between the Lines of Drift, the Memoirs of a Militant. Daniel had to use his strong hand, strong to, help, hand. to help Eric. <laughs> and in April of 2013, the U.S. Attorney General seized $200 to help pay off the $1 million that Eric owes in restitution to the state of Alabama. The book has since been republished and has been made available through the Army of God website. You know, I'm assuming it wasn't a bestseller. Considering Probably not. Uh, Can you not get it they, on Amazon Prime? They only seized two hundred dollars. I know, right? Um, That's like the most like Attorney General petty move, ever. right? I wonder how much it cost him to publish that piece of shit. I don't know. All the sales, dollars. All the sales are probably in Nana Halo. Yeah, I'm saying that right, aren't I? Nana Halo. Nana Halo. I don't know. Jeff will, Jeff will correct you. <laughs> oh, Jeff. Jeff will uh, edit that in. <laughs> I'm glad you're you're taking all the L's in the pronunciations. <laughs> that way I don't have to get fucked with. <laughs> it's fine. They'll just have to love me where I'm at. I'm Southern and I can't help it. I mean... I, yeah. You know eventually they're going to come after us and we're not going to be able to use that excuse anymore. One day, like, but for right now. <laughs> Jesus, Sam, pick up a book and quit burning crosses. <laughs> I'm trying. I mean, she's just trying to wait for our episodes to blow up. Just like this episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Boom. 
All right, guys. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us on this episode. That was my near-death experience as a four-year-old. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, we're glad that you're still here with us yeah. and you didn't get go boom. Right. Yep. We're glad that uh, you didn't go till after the bombing. <laughs> right? <laughs> I can't. Then you would be a survivor and we could talk to you. Yeah, yeah it'd but be I... an interview and an episode. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Who wants to drop them socials? All right. First of all, just like we said at the beginning of the episode, make sure you guys are subscribed, downloading the episodes, leaving good reviews, or leave any review. We take the feedback. It's appreciated. Uh, you guys can follow us on the Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook, all the socials. And next week, as we continue on with the Summer of Slaughter, we've got something really fun planned. And as always, stay creepy. We're killing more campers. <laughs> it's the summer of slaughter. I'm going to make you motherfuckers quit camping. <laughs> By the time this is all said and done, you I'm are, ruining camping. You are ruining camping. I hate the woods. It's full of I goddamn already mosquitoes. didn't like camping, so. It's full of mosquitoes. I'm and done with it. Mosquitoes don't like me, I'm a ginger. Well, we, I'm not so goddamn lucky. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us. Stay creepy and join us next week. Yeah, let us yeah. know on Instagram what you think of the summer of slaughter so far. Yeah, if you have any recommendations for future episodes, DM us. We will reply. We oh, fucking will. I'll do it personally. He but until then, red. I'm not going to leave anybody on red. No, or dead. <laughs> All right, guys, stay creepy. Bye. Bye guys.